Hey, everybody. Geek here. I'm live in the lab. With Jesse Burner. Who's Jesse Burner? Jesse Burner's playing the lawnmower dance. And you saying to yourself, the lawnmower dance, Keith. To bring the lawnmower dance today to introduce our first guest. The only guest is Ryan Clayton. Yeah, Ryan. Ryan turned a few bucks and a lawnmower into millions. And we're going to talk about that. And I think he did it a couple times, actually. So I think we're going to have a great conversation talking about Brian. And today's Wednesday. And for many people, Wednesday is hump day. For me, it's active recovery day. Now, that's what I kind of like to do on my Wednesday. But before we go any further, why don't we have some fun with this and introduce our next guest, our first guest, Brian. What's the lawnmower, man? He can't hear this. That's the funny thing. I'm pushing on my lawnmower. Lawnmower. I'm pushing on my lawnmower. He doesn't hear you. I'm pushing on my lawnmower. So let's bring the screen over to bring our guest, Brian Clayton. And Brian, welcome to the show. Welcome to Live in the Lab. It's good to be here, Keith. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, 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 awesome. Yeah, so you didn't hear the song, and I'll flip it to you later, but it's actually called Lawnmower Man by Sparks. Yeah. And when I saw your story, I, I love music, and when we put this show together, we got to have music. we got to just lighten the load. We're trying to get everybody's attention, so let's make it fun, entertaining, and bring some stuff into it. So I got out of bed today having my coffee, and I'm reading your story and kind of catching up prepping for the show, and I'm like, Lawnmower. Oh man, I got a great idea for some tunes and found uh, some tunes on Lawnmower Man to introduce yourself. So I'm excited to talk about the business. And I mentioned today is a hump day for a lot of people, Wednesday, active recovery day for me. Let's jump into the business athlete side of things. What's Wednesday like for you? Is it an active recovery day or what do you do? So for me, I made a decision after I sold my first company that I was not going to work another day in my life. And I was just going to do whatever it is I wanted to do. And so I'm CEO of a company called Green Power, and Green Power is a 10-year overnight success. And I've had some 100-hour weeks in the last 10 years, but I haven't worked a day in 10 years because it's always been what I wanted to do. I've always enjoyed working on this project. So for me, Wednesday is just like Saturday. It's just like Sunday. And, you know, every day I kind of go through the same routines. In my first business, Wednesday definitely had a feel. Saturday had a feel. Friday afternoon had a feel. Sunday had a feel. But when I sold it, I was kind of out of that rat race and out of that grind. And now every day is kind of like a holiday. Every day feels the same. Every day is like Sunday. That's interesting. I had this conversation with Sardor two weeks ago, this feeling of being an entrepreneur, how every day just kind of becomes the same day. Now, yep. you're saying the opposite side of that now is that not every day still is the same day, but it just means different things to you. That's right. Yeah. If you're trying to grow a business from scratch and invent something new, it really is going to be a seven-day-a-week thing. Sundays are going to be just like Fridays, and you're always going to be working on it, but it's not going to feel like work because it's just really what you want to do. I was listening to an audiobook about Jeff Bezos and the founding of Amazon, and they would talk about how they would always get these weird, wacky emails from Jeff on Saturday and Sunday mornings because that's like a little period when he wasn't really super busy. And he would be walking the store, so to speak, and he would yes. be signing up for Amazon. And even Bezos is working on Amazon seven days a week. Yeah, a family member said to me on the weekend, they said, oh, you're reaching out to some folks here like late tonight or early tomorrow morning? I said, hey, the best time in my experience to reach the CEO or the founder or somebody who has a vested interest in the business, probably in the middle of the night or early in the morning or late at night yeah. when everybody else is actually not around because they're probably near their device, right? So, um, totally. 
Yeah. I used my BlackBerry in the early days when this idea of mobile email was a thing. I used that speed to my advantage, right? So I would reach out to guys Absolutely. like you in the middle of the night, middle of the day, and, and you knew that to my advantage, right? So let's stay down the path of active recovery day on Wednesday or active recovery day for any day for Brian. A business athlete, somebody who kind of likes to take the active lifestyle. Clearly, you're an active guy building a business because you're pushing a lawnmower. What do you do outside of running the business or taking care of the business or pushing a lawnmower to take care of the Brian Clayton before the business and everything else? Yeah, I've ignored that for many years and had to pay the bill with interest. Starting Green Pal, the first five or six years were really rough. It was like pushing on a string, get the company going. But it was year five or six that I realized that I had gained 50 pounds. I was eating horribly, you know, ramen noodles and packaged foods. And I felt like crap every day, had no natural energy that didn't come from like a cup of coffee or a can of Red Bull. And I realized that I had neglected my personal health. I had neglected exercise. I had neglected my temple, I guess you could say. And, and yeah. so out of desperation... I thought, well, something's got to change. And my co-founder said, well, you know, the, the Nashville Marathon is, is in April. And we were having this conversation in like December. And I said, man, I couldn't run a marathon. He said, well, let's just try. And so we both signed up for it. And that was kind of a forcing function for us to then put in the work on the training. And, and I was able to lose 50 pounds in six or seven months and, and get back in shape. And so now I decided to never let myself get that out of shape again, because it does affect your business performance. If you don't feel good, if you're not in good shape, it, it makes everything else suffer. And, and if you neglect it, the bill will come due with interest at some point. It absolutely does. What was the awareness? Was it your own mirror or your partner's mirror? Or was it a joint conversation, which was, we need to do something about this? <laughs> it, was, it was me walking up the steps into the office and huffing and puffing. And it, and it's feeling like crap, like not yeah, having yeah. the natural energy anymore. And it happened progressively, right? It happened over three or four years that I let myself get to that shape. I didn't have this reservoir of energy to work on the project. Uh, at that time, I was writing code. I didn't feel like I wanted to do it anymore. And I started realizing, well, you're eating a bag of Doritos and it, with a can of, of Dr. Pepper. This is the fuel you're putting in your body. And you probably couldn't run around the block if you had to. It was like a hard moment of clarity, I guess you could say. I bet. And the only way I could dig myself out of it was signing up for something that where there was no choice. It was like I had to get ready. I had to be ready to run at least half of the damn thing. And that forcing function, or I call them tripwires, things that you put in your path that you have to deal with, you have to train for, you have to reconcile, can help you uh, stay on track, can help you get to where you're not in a, in a position like that. Brian, there's a lot of people listening and they're saying, yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Or I would never be able to you know, run a marathon or climb a mountain or do something that I think that I just could not do. You found a way to run your marathon you, and you trained and you and your partner did it together. Tell me about the process of I'm doing the marathon. I'm now running the marathon. And then tell me what it felt like when you're in the middle of that marathon going, all right. Yeah, totally. There's a lot of parallels that I didn't anticipate doing a race like that and running a business. And they began to unfold as I was going through this experience. One is you see these goofy people jogging in place at an intersection in, in a metropolitan area. And you're like, man, they look so silly jogging in place. But what you don't understand is as you do that same type of training, you come to realize that it's actually more painful to stop and then restart than it is just to jog in place and to keep going. And, and business is a lot like that. The momentum and keeping that momentum alive is, is huge. 
those little small incremental wins and in progress is what kind of carries you through a lot of the hard parts. And so, and another thing was just the power of setting really small goals and moving it forward one little piece at a time. You know, I couldn't run a mile when I started and when I got done, I could do 26 and business is the same way. When I was building Green Pal, you know, we just wanted to get a hundred people to use the damn thing. And we focused all of our intensity on getting a hundred people to use this app to get lawn mowing services done on a weekly basis. It took a year, but we got that done. And then we moved on to a thousand and 10,000. Now today around 300,000 people are using the app. These little small wins, they don't add up. They compound over time. And in those early days, I kind of needed that lesson. Uh, I needed to experience that. It's, it's interesting to hear your parallel because Wednesdays are yoga day for me. Today I had a 30 minute yoga schedule. Do you think I have a busy day on my calendar today? Do you think I was like, I don't want to do 30 minutes, but you know yeah. what I did? I did two 15 minutes and it was incredible because it's funny, right? I'm like, all right, I can do 15 minutes. So I did my 15 minutes. I'm like, what's actually 15 more minutes by the time I go upstairs, change, put, do my shower, all those other things I'm going to do. That's 15 minutes right there. of wasted time. If I can just do it right here. I've got 30 minutes of my yoga in before you know it, it was all back at it, right? So it's interesting to hear you say you break things into little chunks and you achieve the bigger goal. So to, again, somebody listening, the big ambition was, what did you say, 300,000 subscribers? Is that what it yeah. was? Yeah. And you started right. with what? Your first 100, right? That's right. 100, it was all we cared about and we didn't worry about anything else. It took over a year to get there. But I think if you can work through those little that. levels of the game that way, chunk it down into size, make it manageable. How big was that 100 when you first sat down with him to say, okay, we need to get 100 people to sign up for this thing? Yeah, that was one thing that, you know, we did a lot of things wrong, but we did do that right. We celebrated these small goals like they were big ones. When we got to 100, we celebrated it like it was a million. I mean, we went out partying that night and, <laughs> and really felt good about ourselves because we had worked so hard towards this goal. And it wasn't that we had 100 customers. I had just sold a landscaping company that was servicing thousands of customers. And so I was yes. kind of like starting all over again. But I knew that if we could get 100 people to use it, I knew for damn sure we could get to 1,000. And so I just didn't worry about anything else other than working through those levels of the game. And I knew that the numbers would eventually compound. And so that was kind of like a proof point for us. Interesting. It was evidence that we were on the right track, yeah. So right now we're talking Green Pal, but your life started cutting grass at Peachtree, am I correct? That's right. Yeah. I started mowing lawns in high school as a way to make cash and stuck with that for 15 years. <laughs> it didn't seem like that long and grew that into a real company around 150 employees, eventually getting it over eight figures a year in revenue. And then it was acquired by a big national company with thousands of employees in this industry. So yeah, I've spent 22 years in this industry running a landscaping business and now running GreenPal, a platform that powers the industry. Brian, I scaled a human-powered business where people were from the outside going, well, how are you going to scale that? You just got to add people. Well, there's a way to do it. And my partner and I found a way to do it. The internet was coming to life many years ago in the social media space. A lot of people look at landscaping businesses or painting companies or other physical human businesses. They're difficult to scale because you're always looking for human beings. How did you scale your first business when you're, you're going from cutting the lawn yourself to, okay, you know, if you need to grow this thing, I need to have people around me. How did you move from one to the other so early? 
Yeah, it did take a while. It was me and a push mower and then me hiring my first employee and, and it took me a year to figure out how to get that right and how to get the basic unit economics of the business right. Meaning yeah. we charge by the labor hour essentially. So we bring an employee in and it costs us X number of dollars to put that employee in the field and what can we charge for that? And that took a while to figure out and figure out how not to lose money doing that. And then uh, I would just layer on one employee at a time and then one crew at a time. So in the landscaping business, you put two or three uh, people together and you run a crew. I was just bolting on one crew a year almost until eventually I uh, grew it to 90 crews going out every day, trucks going out every day. So incrementally, I built out the operations side of it. And I guess it was year three or four that I had a couple of epiphanies. One was trying to delineate the difference between working in the business and working on the uh, business and yes. trying to make time for working on the business and trying to enter, and whether it be Saturday afternoon or Sunday, you figuring out what my employee training system is, you know, that would be one problem in the business, one bottleneck, like to your point, how do you bring somebody in who doesn't know how to execute the services that the business sells and train them and get them up to speed? And so I spent two years building lawn care university a way that we could bring somebody in who had never picked up a weed eater before to in two weeks be really good at it and be really good at being a technician in this business, whereas that would normally take six months. And so that was one thing that I was able to do to help scale. The other epiphany that I had was I realized that everything I was doing around delivering landscaping maintenance services was kind of table stakes. A lot of times founders in, in home service businesses and service businesses in general will over-index on the quality of the service they provide and think that that's the value proposition. And it really isn't. That's just kind of table stakes. Customers expect that. I realized then that I was in that, actually the sales business, that the majority of my time needed to be tuning the sales process, figuring out how to connect the value of what it is we did with the customers that needed our services, and just creating a better sales process than our competitors were. That was the engine of growth for the business. And then as we got more resources in, we could put more resources to work into better systems, processes for delivering a better quality service. And it was kind of like this flywheel. It took me five, six years to figure that out, but that's how I was able to get it from 1 million to three to five, to, and ultimately the 10 million a year in revenue. It's fascinating to me because when you take something as simple as a, a lawnmower business, and let's face it, it's a competitive space, very competitive space. Absolutely. You stood out because you invested in everything around it. Yeah. Eventually, as, as we began to tune that sales process, we would get out of the business of selling landscaping maintenance. When, and we got into the business of figuring out where our customers were trying to go and how do we help them get there. And so an example of that would be we sold into a lot of apartment complexes and uh -huh. these were 50, $100,000 a year contracts, multi-year contracts. They were hard to get. It was very competitive to acquire that type of customer because it can be very lucrative. Yes. And so normally, you know, our competitors and my company at the time would say, this is the value proposition. Hey, we do great work, quality, integrity, reliable. Our employees have matching uniforms, service, honesty. Nobody cares about any of that. Like they expect that. Good for you for doing <laughs> yeah. your job, right? Thanks for showing up and actually cleaning my, that's what frustrates me with today's world is that yeah. I got to congratulate you for doing your job and now you want to tip for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me started. But that would be like going to McDonald's or, you know, any fast food restaurant and, and like them saying, Hey, the food's hot. These things are table stakes. And McDonald's is actually in the marketing business. They're not in the hamburger business. They're in the real estate business. And so you kind of have to think like that in your business. And 
while ourselves and all of our competitors were trying to sell on quality of service and price, we changed the conversation to be, what is your occupancy rate? And they would say, well, begrudgingly, 87%. And why? And we would say, well, we believe that we have a plan that we can offer you where where we can help you move that up a couple points. And so check this out. We're going to do like an enhancement around the model home. We're going to do an enhancement at the entrance, make the grass greener. So it looks like a B plus property. And, and we have a way to do that. And, and we feel like if we do that for two years, we can move you from an 87 to a 90. And that would change the game. Was it a silver bullet? Would we close every contract? No, but we started closing like two or three times the contracts that we were pitching. And so we did that for every sector. We did that for banks, restaurants, financial services, you name it. We would figure out where our clientele was trying to get to in business and how do we help them get there. I find it interesting that you focus so much on sales. It appears to me many people lose focus of that. They get caught up in everything else but sales and everything else becomes more important, be it the operations, be it the systems, be it the HR, be it everything else. Without sales, you don't have anything else around you. So while you recognize everything was table stakes, and when I see all the other landscape companies out there, lawn mowing companies out there, they're actually doing the wrong thing, aren't they, Brian? They're not doing the right thing. They're not selling enough. Nobody teaches us how to run a small business ever. I mean, we're not taught it yeah. in school. We're not taught it in college. So hopefully you stumble across books, podcasts, YouTube, university, you stumble onto these concepts and, and apply them to your business and invest in them. They're expensive. It's expensive to build out this type of process. It's expensive to hire personnel to, to help you run it. It's expensive to bring in consultants and to help you tune it. But you see this everywhere that the best product doesn't win. It's the best marketed product. You know, McDonald's is yes. a horrible burger, but they're the, the worldwide leader. And why is that? It's not always the case, but usually it's, it's not the best product that wins the market. It's the best marketed product. And so the money is invested into the sales engine, and that's what propels the business forward. Not necessarily you just quality and service, integrity, honesty, reliability. These things don't propel the business forward. It's a sales engine at the core of it. Distribution is more important than anything else. I've experienced this when I was building GreenPal that First-time founders worry about product. Second-time founders worry about distribution. And so the first-time founder is worried about product, and they're over-indexing on the things that I just said, quality, integrity, reliabilities. And the second-time founder knows that all that stuff is important, but that's the entry price to the game. What really matters is distribution. How are we going to get this product into the hands of our customers? How are we going to connect with our customers, find them, meet them where they are, and offer our solution to them? How are we going to distribute this thing in a way that is cost effective? And the second time founder knows that that's 10 times harder than the first part. Brian, when second time founders and second time entrepreneurs explain what you just did, which is the importance of distribution, we've both probably watched enough Shark Tank episodes or so forth when the sharks will say, well, what's your distribution going to be good for you, right? So you're bringing a, a product to market. How are you going to get it to market? Why is it yet so many founders still don't focus on distribution? They focus on everything else but distribution. Is it because it goes back to sales, Brian, which is it's difficult? You got to go talk to people because let's get to that in a moment here about, I think I can relate to you a little bit about the introverted side of that sales side of things. So is that what holds a lot of people back, you think, which is, oh, no, I got to go talk to a bunch of people to sell them something. It's definitely the harder part of the equation. There's a book called The Lean Startup by Eric Reese, and it basically teaches you one thing. Get out of the building. 
And what he means by that is get out from behind the laptop and go talk to your 10 or 20 or 30 customers and figure out what they wish your product or service would do differently. And then use that free R&D to figure out how to get 10 times more of those customers. And that stuff's not fun. Like going to Starbucks or going to somebody's house and meeting with them at their kitchen table is just, we're not inclined to do that. And it's the not fun part. So we want to do everything else but that. We want to work on the brand strategy or what the website looks like or, or, you know, all of those things that might matter at some point, but they don't matter right now at level one or level two of the game at times and have been resident to get out of the building or pick up the phone and talk to my customers. But it's the part that's like the highest leverage. Talking to customers is high leverage time. I think a good parallel can be like the music industry. And yes. you think that the hard part is learning how to write a song, learning how to sing, learning how to play the guitar coming up with the money for some studio time, cutting an album. And you think that's all of the hard part. And then you realize as a musician, I imagine that the hard part is, is actually getting a hundred people or 10 people to show up at a dive bar to watch you play yes, or to stream your music. And that's actually the hard part. I saw an interview with T.I., the rapper, yes. the other day, who's now a big-time record exec. He's got his own label and whatnot. He says all the time he'll be walking down the street, and people will come up to him and say, let me, let me do a freestyle for you. And he's like, they are going to like bust this freestyle. It's going to be so good that I'm just going to sign them on the spot. And he goes, what they don't realize is, he's like, you could do the best freestyle I have ever heard, and it's not going to matter. Because I almost don't care about that. I want to know how many TikTok followers do you have? How many Instagram followers do you have commenting on your stuff? How many streams do you have on any of the streaming services? I want to look at that. And I want to look and see how you can get that early adoption and how you can show evidence of that. And then I come find you. And so like as founders, we can learn from that. We can learn that the music is almost table stakes. The product is table stakes. The quality service is table stakes. The hard part is getting people to show up to the show, streaming the music, getting people to try the product and continue to use the product is the hard part. And that's where we need to spend all of our time. I love the analogy with the music industry. I, I never really considered it that way though, until you put it that way. But then when I reflect upon what you said, I think about artists like Jay-Z peddling his CDs or just out there talking to as many people as possible. And then you look at modern day artists like Drake or Taylor Swift. They're extremely talented human beings. There's no doubt about that. But their ethic to build their reach, to build their distribution, that is really, I think, is what unmatched. When you look at super artists and people who are extremely successful is what happens before they get on stage or before they even write a song, isn't it? Isn't that the truth? Exactly. And it's just one more example of, is Drake the best rapper who ever lived? No, but he's definitely, by any yardstick, one of the most successful. And so it's just another example of the greatest product not winning is the best distribution and the best sales engine at its core that does win. We will never see another Taylor Swift or Drake in our lifetime because those two artists emerged during the emergence of social media and they learned how to build an audience, build distribution and create music because today's songs, Brian, are two and a half minutes. Somebody said Drake is going to beat Taylor in the long run because he has 280 some odd singles. And if you look at the social media world, it's the same thing. You got to create a bunch of content for something to stick. Look at all the music Drake has created. Just sit back and look at it one day. The amount yeah. of music. And then Taylor, not only do I record all my music once and then get it sold, well, I'm going to go do it again. 
Yeah, totally. Again, I don't have a, any musical talent in my DNA, but I do love looking at the parallels between the music industry and, and business. You know, everybody was all worried about AI music there for a while, that it was just going to like take over everything. And the reality is in the last 10 or 15 years, there's never been a shortage of music to go listen to. You could never get to the end of Spotify or YouTube music. And AI music is kind of the same. The well-distributed music that, that's going to win and always continue to dominate. And I don't think AI music will have any effect on that. And the same is in business. Is AI going to destroy my business or yours? Probably not. It's more or less the why behind the business and the marketing and distribution machine behind it that's going to make it succeed or not. So yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated with that. How has AI impacted your business? Your business is an analog business. Let's call it. It's analog. It's physical by nature. How has generative AI impacted Brian's business? It's helped us a lot. And I'll tell you why. The first thing is, is we're self-funded. We haven't taken on any outside capital. And so a lot of times in these technology-based businesses, especially in marketplaces like ours, they raise a bunch of money and it's kind of like get rich or die track. They put all the money to work and either it works out or it doesn't. And so in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of Uber for X ideas that have crashed and burned. Uber for home cleaning, Uber for laundry service, Uber for valet parking. And they all raised tens of millions of dollars and now they're not here anymore. We decided we didn't want to go that route. We self-funded the business, so we're kind of always have been scrappy. And now our team is around 40 people and we're profitable, but it's taken us a decade to get here. Well, now you can do so much more with less headcount. Well, now we can do the same thing that 200 people can do with 20 people. And whether it be creating content, helping customers connect with service providers easier and identifying causes and things that go wrong before they turn into big problems, we, we use AI for that. And 10 years ago, you had to have a half a million dollar a year genius on your staff to pull these things off. And now you just need a $20 a month subscription. So in many ways, it's leveled the playing field for our company to compete with other uh, startups that have raised, you know, 50, $100 million. We can now compete on a level playing field. So it's been tremendously beneficial for us. Brian, you're a marketer more so than a lawnmower person, aren't you? That's what you are. When you look in the mirror, as I'm hearing you speak, you identified something that everybody needs, the, the grass cut, and then you devised everything around that simple task, which I love because entrepreneurs get so caught up in everything else, but you said, okay, one thing we're going to do really well and then just market and build all these processes, university and become experts in this domain. Would that be fair for me to say? Yeah, it, and it's that. And it's also, I think the least sexy your idea, the least glamorous your industry, the greater your chances of success. And that's yeah. kind of how it's been for me. The landscaping business is one of the most blue collar, non-glamorous industry you can be a part of. And that has helped me excel in it because we don't have a whole lot of well-funded, sophisticated operators chasing out for the same opportunities. It's almost like playing the game on easy mode almost. It hasn't been easy, but in relative to other industries, it's been more manageable. And, and so for us, for me, 22 years, I focus on one thing, this one industry, knowing it from the inside out, and it's become a student on how to make it run smoother and easier is one of the, I guess, competitive advantages I've had is I have just stuck with one thing. And I'll be honest with you, I hate the smell of fresh cut grass. I hated it after my first year in the lawn mowing business. I don't love working in the yard. I don't love digging holes and planting trees, but I do love being a part of uh, a project, a company, a mission, something bigger than me. It just happens to be that lawns and, and yards and grass is just the, the vehicle to get there. You might not love the smell of freshly cut grass, but I bet you in the early days, you love the smell of freshly printed cash. Right. And you, <laughs> there you go. And you went and you absolutely built a business. You sold it for lots of money. It changed your life. 
you accumulated stuff. You bought a lot of stuff. You bought a Ferrari, I believe. Yeah. And then one day you woke yeah. up and or over a series of days, you woke up, you looked in the mirror and you recognize mm, it's not really me anymore or that's not me. I'm beyond that. I want to be minimalistic because money was buying a lot of things. I got caught up in the cycle of consumerism, but I have different goals and ambitions now. Am I correct in everything I just said? Yeah, that's, that's pretty spot on for uh, how I experienced it. So I can say the exact same thing. So when I read your pre-story and I, I related 100%, let's talk about it. Yeah, it, it's a weird, weird thing. And everybody tells you that you're going to go through it. And you don't, you're like, yeah, all right, until you go through it. But for me, you know, I started mowing yards and I was always cutting grass in the wealthy parts of town. I was working these 12, 13 hour days. And I always said to myself, well, if I can just live in this neighborhood, by the time I'm 30, it'll all be worth it. And, and I'll be damned if I wasn't able to do it by like 29. And, and so here I am, 29 years old, and I, and I built this big mansion. And I'm living in the same neighborhood as like the, the doctors and lawyers and businessmen in town. And they hated my guts because I was throwing parties all the time and stuff. And, you know, I was like every kid. I had a poster of, of a Ferrari on my wall and when I was a kid, and I wanted one. So I bought one. And that was fun for about a month. And then you realize that, like, owning something like that is more, more trouble than it's worth. And I'm kind of introverted naturally, and I don't like to talk to strangers or people in general. And so, like, when you drive that car, you attract all this kind of attention. So it doesn't matter where you go, restaurant, gas station, whatever, you have to talk to three people. And, and I try to be polite. And so that was just exhausting for me. And so then I got to a point where I just never drove the damn thing. And then you start to really understand, like, all of this material stuff is cool and it's fun, but it's not fulfilling. And at the end of the day, it's more of a pain in the ass. Came all this realization, and at the same time, I literally sold everything and just moved into an 800-square-foot apartment. And yeah. so now to this day, I own very little, and I'm happier than I've ever been. And you have to learn that lesson yourself, and then you come out the other side, and, and you appreciate things, I think, on a higher level. Well said. But wasn't money the, the thing that motivated you when you first started cutting grasses? Because it was, wasn't it? It was that. It was. Absolutely. I, I know it was yeah. for me too. And I think it is for every entrepreneur. Any entrepreneur who says to me, well, I'm not really in it for the money. I'm like, bullshit. Perhaps you can pretend there's a bigger point of view, but no, you want to make cash. Until you do so like you did, there is such a thing as keeping up with the Joneses, isn't there? And there's that peer pressure of keeping up with the Joneses. And in a digital world, you don't need very much, do you, Brian? It is so hard, but the only way to win the rent race is to opt out of it because yes. it never ends. I, I know people that are way wealthier than me and, and they're pissed off because yeah, they got a they got a yacht, but they can't do a super yacht. The guy with a billion dollars, he's like, Yeah, I got a billion dollar super yacht, but I don't have a pro team. And it literally never ends. And the only way to win it is just to opt out of it. I still struggle with this. I would say half of my mission is financial and the other half is why we do what we do. I think half and half is a good balance for me because at the end of the day, there has to be an economic engine at whatever the hell it is you're doing for it to survive. And that's capitalism. And so you, you do have to be motivated by both. But I think it evolves as in the early days, you can be all about getting this money and then you realize it's bigger than you. Yes. So I can relate to that as well because I've said to myself in this desire to keep building this next venture of ours. I'm like, okay, so when it's successful, what am I going to do with all the money again? And then I'm like, well, no, I kind of goes against what I've been thinking about because minimalism is more appealing to me. Uh, so, but if I can change people's lives in the process, if I can work with some great people in the process, and if I can make some pretty good money along the way, I'm okay with that because it's a different kind of perspective and maybe just my age in life as well, where I get a different point of view on the world as well. But 
money's the motivator, but there's so much more going on to accelerate that. And I completely relate to that as well. You said being an introvert, I would argue that a lot of entrepreneurs think there are, are introverts and then don't know how to get past that wall of being an introvert. Many who don't know me would not recognize that I'm an introvert as well. I'm comfortable here behind the mic in front of the camera or in my own little lab. I'm comfortable on stage talking to people. I'm comfortable leading teams. But do I want to go out and shake hands and be extroverted the entire time? No, I would just kind of prefer to be quiet. I overcame it by recognizing that the only way I was going to move anything forward was by going to talk to people. And if you're struggling with being introverted, just find a way to go talk to somebody and then go talk to the next person and the next person. And you can build your business that way. One at a time, back to your comment earlier in the show, we wanted to sell a hundred people, right? Yes. It's going to be really tough if you're not willing to overcome that. And I've struggled with that. You know, one thing I love to do is watch conferences on YouTube and learn. But I hate going to a conference. So it's this weird thing. I hate them uh, too. And, and you know, you know, my yeah. opinion is, I'll tell you this. I think the only people benefiting from a conference is the conference organizers. That's it. Yeah. That's it. They're, they're bringing us yeah. all together to make their money. And we're all just kind of hanging out. And we're spending the corporate dollars of the corporation we work for. We're shaking hands. Then we're leaving. And then we're forgetting all about it. I don't know. I think there's better ways money and time can be spent, in my opinion. Well, the information often shared on stage at a fireside chat or a talk or some kind of presentation at a conference, like uh, like search SEO is a big channel for us, form our SEO strategy. And I've learned a lot by attending a dozen or so different conferences every year on YouTube. And I do it for a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the time. I've tried to go to some of them and it just seems it's not the highest and best use of my time. Maybe there's some networking and stuff, but again, that can be done digitally. And for me, it's not my thing. Now, some people, they love it and, and they, they thrive on that. And that's okay. I think it's important to play to your strengths. But on the other hand is to not believe your own BS. So a lot of times we assign ourselves labels and then we let that be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So yeah. I'm not an engineer, therefore I have to go like hire a coder. And so that was how I thought for the first two years of running GreenPal. And I would bang my head against the wall. I, I'm trying to get developers to build this platform with me, and, and I can't make any progress. So I had to become an engineer, a really terrible one, but enough to be dangerous to where I could build out a team around me. And so I think a lot of times if you can remind yourself that this self-imposed limiting belief is just going to cause you to stay stuck, you have to overcome that. Little small wins to point yourself in the right direction. Make it real small. Okay, I'm just going to do five sales calls today. Who can't do five calls? Yeah. You know, and then maybe, maybe yeah, I'm going to do five every day this week and then next week, seven. And so it's a lot of times it's that momentum and stacking those little small wins. Have you not found yourself, Brian, as you've gone on through your second business and, and, and growing your second business and aging through life, reflecting upon your wisdom? as your value as well. I know that there's days when I wrestle with my own imposter syndrome or my own introvertedness or my own, oh, I don't really want to say anything. I'm like, wait a minute. No, I, I, I have permission to say something. I'm, I'm 51 years old. I've accomplished a couple of things in my life. I have an opinion or I, or I have a, a point of view on something or I've experienced that. Maybe I failed or I've made that mistake. I'm going to share it with you. Every single day goes by now for me, Brian, where I say to myself, well, why wouldn't I? Because I don't want to say I don't care, but it's like, I, I don't care because now this is who I am. This is my experiences and I want to share them with you. And if I can help point you in the right direction, I'm going to do that. Do you follow what I mean? I was scared of kind of getting back into business and being that, okay, so how am I going to reconnect with the world again? Being that old guy. And it's like, no, wait a minute. Use that to your advantage. Right? You know what I mean? Did you say you're 51? Yeah. 
five one. Yeah, the five and a one. You drop a link to your skincare in the bio. <laughs> <laughs> it's good lighting, man. It's good lighting. I appreciate that. That's very, it's very Jeez, man. Me. Awesome. Well done. So I'll tell you what the hack is. I don't drink. I haven't had dropped the alcohol in seven years. And I have no judgment on it, but I do not drink any alcohol. And I think that has a lot to do with it, frankly. And that's just my that's life awesome. hack. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Very kind of you. That's, that's great, man. Well done. Yeah, I'm 43. For me, it's like every year or two, if you're putting everything you've got into a business, you'll evolve into a whole new person. Yes. And you'll look back two or three years, you'll be unrecognizable to yourself. And so maybe it's just part of a decade of maturing, but I think a lot of it is leading and growing a company causes you to read books, listen to podcasts, go to YouTube University, be exposed to higher ways of thinking that makes a lot of those trivial things not matter anymore and, and not be interesting anymore. So this is weird stuff that I've experienced. And I think it's important in yourself and also people you're looking to hire. Do you have 10 years experience in this or have you repeated the same year 10 times? So do you have 10 years of cumulative, like compounding experience, or did you just do the same year over and over again, 10 times in a row? I think in life, it can be important to remind ourselves of that, to not repeat the same year 10 times, to get 10 years of experience. I don't know how we go any further than that last enlightening point you just made, because brilliant. Brian, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. We had a great chat today. Brian Clayton joined us today. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I'm Keith Bellis. I'm live in the lab, live in the Business Athlete Performance Lab, and we'll see you all tomorrow.